Welcome to the Ghostly Gallery Podcast, a place where we explore the world of horror in film, television, books, and popular culture. Well, greetings, everyone. My name is Bruce Markison. And as always, I'm joined by producer and co-host Tracy Asteria for this week's program. Tracy, welcome. How are you today? I'm doing great, Bruce. I'm just, I'm so amazed at how quickly January has passed us by. <laughs> how is everything going with you? Well, January is the coldest month of the year here in Cooperstown, New York. Some people try to tell me it's February, but I, I really believe it's January. So if we can get through <laughs> January, things usually do get a little bit on the warmer side. So that's that's something to look forward to. And of course, March is when, um, well, my other great love besides horror starts. That's baseball in terms of spring training games and then the regular season in April. So uh, that's that's always a good time of year. Well, our guest this week, Tracy, is uh, an author, film producer, director, Gary Don Rhodes. Uh, He has written some excellent books on horror film history and is particularly known for his expertise on Bela Lugosi. His books include the following, Lugosi, His Life in Films on Stage and in the Hearts of Horror Lovers. He's also written Becoming Dracula, The Early Years of Bela Lugosi. Horror at the Drive-In and the Birth of the American Horror Film, also on Gary's resume. And among the documentary films that he has directed is one from 1997. It's an excellent film, Lugosi, Hollywood's Dracula. And for anybody that wants to learn more about the story of Lugosi, that is highly recommended. Gary's newest book is also out. It is called Vampires in Silent Cinema. It covers vampire films from 1896 to 1931 and does include extensive research on the 1922 film Nosferatu. Gary, welcome to the Ghostly Gallery. Thanks for being with us. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. It's wonderful to be here with both of you. So, Gary, this is a topic that has really not received much in the way of research or attention. You know, we explore a lot of areas of horror. But Vampires in Silent Films, uh, that is somewhat untouched. Tell us how you became interested in this. Well, I think I always have been to the extent that as a little kid reading some of the earliest horror film histories, they would speak about a film called The Devil's Castle from 1896 uh, that Georges Méliès had uh, made. And it was considered a lost film until the 21st century. And there was always this wonderful fascination of what was in the film. Allegedly, there was a vampire that turned from vampire bat form to human or so forth. That's what at least the books told us way back when. So as a little kid, I think it was fascinating to consider these films, even Nosferatu, which I read about long before I ever saw these titles that just seemed almost mystical because they were far from reach. And yet the few photos I would see of them seemed absolutely fascinating. Tell me more about The Devil's Castle. Well, it's wonderful. It was a French film by Georges Méliès. I think some of your listeners will probably know not only Méliès' works, but also Martin Scorsese's film about him, Hugo. He was kind of the first great magician and special effects wizard of the cinema. And Devil's Castle was one of his early films. It was uh, sometimes people consider it the first horror film. It, it really wasn't. That, that, that came in 1895, a little bit earlier. But The Devil's Castle actually has uh, Mephistopheles, Satan, presumably 
flying in, in bat form, into a castle and turning into a more human form, conjuring various ghosts and witches and goblins uh, before shrinking away at the side of a cross that's presented by the castle's owner. And uh, so in mere seconds, uh, we get all kinds of monsters. And uh, for the first time, a lot of them on film. When you look at this era, 1896-1931, were there a lot of silent vampire films or just a few to pick from? Well, that's that's the best question. It's a wonderful question. And, and it's got, I think, two answers. If it's vampires like we think of, like probably you and me and, and Tracy are most interested in or enjoy the most, the actual supernatural vampires, there were very few. Uh, but when it came to what were called vampires, what were considered to be vampires at the time, there were dozens. And the distinction or the gulf in what I've just said, which may at first seem like a contradiction, is because the very term vampire was really undergoing an evolution at the end of the 19th century, early 20th. What did the word mean? For a lot of people, it, was, it really meant a person usually a woman in most stories, who uh, would be more metaphorically a vampire that would bleed somebody, say a lover, dry financially, emotionally, economically, as opposed to the kind of folkloric, uh, you know, fanged vampires that thrive on blood. The famous, most famous example of what I've just described would be Theta Bera, of course, uh, particularly in her film, A Fool There Was. But there were there were quite a number of those kinds of films, these kinds of evil people who used others. They weren't all women. Uh, Lou Cody was an actor of the period who became famous as kind of a male vampire. All of this really got going in the at the end of the 1890s with Rudyard Kipling, our old friend Kipling, who who wrote a poem to accompany a painting called The Vampire. It's famous lines, including a fool there was, even as you and I. And so that started putting kind of a, the, the term became much more elastic. The other strange oddity of the period is that there were several silent films that used a different metaphor for the term from the 19th century. Even the early days of the 19th century, vampire was often used synonymously with terms like bandit, robber pirate even somebody who would feed off of others financially by theft for example so what's what's curious is that there were quite a few films of the period that had these kinds of metaphorical vampires and that's not me saying it so much as the fact that they they were calling these vampires at the time yeah. in the titles of the film in the intertitles the stories the publicity uh, there were all kinds of fascinating titles, including things like The Blonde Vampire or Exit the Vampire, one after the other. But they weren't, to go back to your original question, they weren't the bloodsuckers. They were very few of our friends like Nosferatu. Gary, oh, would you consider those horror films or would they be put into another genre? Well, that's wonderful. I, I would myself consider them another genre, but it's interesting at the time how a lot of critics and sometimes critics reporting on what they saw reaction wise in the auditorium 
with uh, everyday audience members, they were often referring to these women as, uh, uh, and, and sometimes again, men, but women like Theta Barra as very dark, very, uh, sometimes even people like Bram Stoker's name would come up to help describe them. So we would, I think, today not consider these horror films. At the time, though, a lot of the terms uh, that were used were like what we would now use to describe horror films. Even some of the photos, you know, Theta Barra's photo was taken alongside skeletons. I mean, they may have been prop skeletons, but they were meant to look like actual human skeletons or depictions of her with bat-like artwork. Uh, spider webs sometimes on these women's gowns or even in the backgrounds uh, as if to suggest, you know, they were the spider spinning the web for the unwary fly, as as uh, Dracula later says. So I don't think we would consider these horror films. I wouldn't. Uh, but they are kind of horror adjacent in an yeah. interesting way. Before we get to Nosferatu, tell us about some of the other vampire films that survived from this time period. You mentioned The Devil's Castle. Are there a few others that we can still watch today? There are There are a few. A few of them, alas, are stuck in archives, which is why I'm currently planning a documentary film on the subject of vampires and silent cinema so I can get the clips out there in a way that a book can never do, you know, the actual footage, the historic footage. There's a wonderful one from 1912 from Denmark called The Vampire Dancer. And it features what seems very much to be the first vampire bite on camera, a female vampire biting uh, a male who's dancing with her. Uh, There's a fascinating film from 1915, one of the most fascinating. Unfortunately, it's lost, but there are five surviving photos. A Russian vampire film called The Afterlife Wanderer uh, that starred Olga Baklanova when she was very young. That name may ring a bell to some because she ended up immigrating to Hollywood and starring in Freaks, the Todd Browning film, when she was about, say, 17 years older. Uh, That's one. My favorite, though, that I've spent a lot of time in Budapest uh, tracking down is the very first version of Dracula, which was not Nosferatu, uh, despite kind of popular uh, impressions that that was the case. It was called The Death of Dracula. And it was an eight, nine, excuse me, it was a 1921 Hungarian silent film starring Paul Ascanis as Dracula. And, um, and so it was the very first Dracula film. Unfortunately, again, like so many silent films, it's lost, but there are surviving photos. And then, of course, that starts getting us to uh, the one we all know and love, which is Nosferatu. You mentioned going into these archives. This is an area I don't I, I don't know a lot about. I love obviously horror and, and and doing research in other ways, but I've I've never requested permission to go into an archive and look at films. Is that hard to do? Is it difficult to get access? It's it's not that difficult to get access. Uh it's just uh often the travel, really. Uh because I've been in archives in places like Slovakia and Romania and all across the world, and often it's more just getting to the place to examine not only sometimes very aged films, a lot of which are archived in America, places like the Library of Congress and the George Eastman House, 
But it's not just always films. It's their their paper archives, you know, where yellowing bits of paper, contracts, uh, 100-year-old photos, etc. The the kind of documents and, and stuff that's part of a film, even though it's not the film, you know. Yeah. Sounds to me like you enjoy this. I do love it. I have to say that... Uh, the doing the research is a bit like uh, doing, I think, almost archaeological work. Hmm. Uh, you know, I my, my, my very most recent publication is published online this weekend, and it's about the very first horror film soundtrack with the very first film that had a background score of any kind, uh, which was 1928. It was a film called The Terror. And digging into that literally meant digging into piles and piles of yellowing documents sometimes crumbling in one's own hands so it is uh it is it is fun at least for me we're talking to author producer director gary don rhodes who has a new book out vampires in silent cinema just being released this month as a matter of fact gary let's uh, let's move on to the silent film that we all love to talk about and that is nosferatu and for a lot of younger movie viewers, younger generations. It's not easy for them to adjust to silent films. But looking at this one objectively, how sh- how do you think we should rate Nosferatu? Good, very good, or an absolute classic? Oh, I think it is an absolute classic. I certainly agree with you, Bruce, that for some younger people, uh, silent cinema is very much foreign to their sensibilities. In fact, for that matter, it's foreign to almost all of our sensibilities, people living alive today because we didn't live through that era it takes some getting used to you know one may not enjoy opera at first but then one might become very very interested in it so it's it's a bit of an acquired taste silent cinema but i think nosferatu is one of its greatest classics one of the greatest classics of horror cinema certainly which i believe is why it has so engaged and and enraptured so many of us, including the likes of, say, Nicolas Cage, uh, when he produced Shadow of the Vampire, you know, some 20 years ago, uh, about the making, at least a fantastical version of the making of the film, with Willem Dafoe playing the, uh, the vampire, all the way up to, say, Robert Eggers with his forthcoming remake. I, this, this is the one silent film, I think, that... Uh, Well, if one doesn't like it, probably one wouldn't like any silent film. Yeah. What makes it so good in your mind? Well, for me, it it really is like uh, from not just another time. I mean, all silent films from 1922, the year of Nosferatu, would seem like from another time, would seem antique. But it's antique in a very fascinating way. It's, uh, you know, it's almost as if one is... uh, Finding the Dead Sea Scrolls of Cinema or something when one watches Nosferatu because, well, for a lot of us, most of our lives, very little was known about Max Schreck, who played the vampire. So he was himself very mysterious, his makeup completely unforgettable and completely unlike the very attractive style of vampire that 19th century literature and most 20th century, 21st century cinema gives us. You know, this is this vampire is not one that looks like he would fit in in Twilight, let alone with the ghost. <laughs> you know, he's he's uh, disgusting. He's he's rat like. He's able to kind of summon rats. He's very much a kind of a nocturnal creature. 
Uh, and even the locations in the film that were, were already ancient by the time that uh, F.W. Murnau, the director, chose them. And some of these are still standing, you know, uh, like the Salzpiker in Lübeck, I've been to myself, which becomes Nosferatu's home after he moves and tries to put the move on Hutter's wife, Ellen. Uh, these places were already ancient in some respects by the time that the film was made in 1922. So it has this extremely old feeling. And I think the best sense of that when it comes to horror and folklore like vampirism. I want to talk about the whole controversy with the Stoker estate, but you, you talk about Max Schreck and his very unique appearance in this film. And there's always been this story, and I don't know if it's an urban legend, and you probably would know the answer one way or another, but there's always been this rumor that at the time the film, either when it was being filmed or after it came out, there were actually rumors in Germany that Max Schreck was a vampire. I'm sure you've heard that story. Any truth to it? No, no. Unfortunately, it would, it makes a great, it's, it's like the old saying, you know, is, is that a true story? And then I have to reply, no, but it's true. It is a story. Uh, <laughs> There's been a great legend, particularly in America, when people first started writing about some of these films in the days of, say, the 1960s and 70s. The very fact that Shrek's uh, appearance was so unique, the very fact that other of his films were, were generally unknown in America, uh, the very fact that his name uh, bears some close relationship to the German word for terror, yeah. meaning Schrecken. So it's not the exact name uh, word, but it's close. These helped cause rise, give rise to that kind of urban myth. And I think it really concretizes in, in Elias Mirage's film, Shadow of the Vampire, that I mentioned a few minutes ago, where, where Willem Dafoe plays Max Schreck, but he plays Max Schreck in this fantastical alternate universe as a real vampire. Shrek himself was rather known in Berlin. He had worked with the Max Reinhardt theater group. He was in many other films, some of which are now readily available online. There's even an enormously thick biography of, of Shrek in the German language. Um, and role after role, he looks like a stately uh, German actor. Uh, he was not at all the mysterious figure during the 1920s, for example, that we have at times looked back on him and perceived. It's the more so, fun sort. Okay. Yeah. So people people of that time didn't really think that he was a vampire. That's totally made up. That's totally made up. I mean, there may have been, look, there may have been, as with anywhere, with any film, some young children or somebody in rural yeah. Germany that, that saw his performance and thought it was so amazing. They were convinced that said though, no, no, he was rather well known. He yeah. even appeared at the premiere of Nosferatu in Berlin on stage and gave a long rambling talk that uh, newspapers tell us the audience there actually found kind of boring, arrogant, and too long. Hmm. Uh, so, so, so at the, even at the premiere uh, people were very able to distinguish between actor and character. So why did the director, F.W. Murnau, change the names of the characters? Was he anticipating there were going to be problems from the Stoker estate, specifically Bram Stoker's widow, Florence? Or was there another reason for that? 
Well, we certainly, I think that we, are, we would be uh, wise to presume. We don't know for sure. Murnau himself, of course, dies young, tragically, one of the greatest filmmakers of the silent period. Uh, but what we can, I think, clearly speculate with good reason is that Murnau did change the names to avoid copyright, or at least in an effort, and what became a failed effort to avoid copyright problems. I think the best reason we can believe that, uh, even though we don't have Murnau, you know, he didn't really do many interviews before his death or so forth. What I, what, why I believe that most specifically is he had already done this once before. Uh, in 1920, two years earlier, he made an unauthorized version of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Uh, and which was still a huge story at the time. It, there were, there were actually two versions made in America, one of them with John Barrymore, a lot of money, including going to the rights of the copyright, uh, because it was copyright at the time. Uh, Murnau made his own version. It was called Der Janiskopf in, uh, Germany, but it was also at times in 1920 referred to very directly as Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. It starred Conrad Veidt. Some of the listeners may remember him for, well, everything from the cabinet of Dr. Caligari through Casablanca. And that film came under troubles uh, because Murnau didn't have the rights. So I think that's where we're right to believe he was changing the names in Nosferatu because it, uh, it, it this wasn't the first time he was adapting copyrighted work without permission. Yeah. So... Stoker's widow, Florence, uh, ends up um, going to court and eventually does succeed in really getting the film taken out of circulation. Trying to look at it objectively, do you think she was in the right, that this was copyright infringement? Or do you think that Murnau made enough differences in his film from the original novel that you could legitimately say it's, it's a story of its own? What do you think? Well, that's wonderful. I, I think that's tremendous. And I think I think there's a couple of things you say there directly that are fascinating to me directly to answer your question. I would say that it, it was what at the time and throughout the 19th century, also often with lot opera and so many things, theatrical adaptations of novels were called, quote, liberal adaptations. So maybe sure, there's some vestiges of the original story there, but they're changed quite a bit. So I, I think Murnau developed a story that becomes unique unto itself. Sure, there's similarities, of course, uh, but for that matter, there's similarities of Stoker's Dracula to some earlier vampire stories like Polidori's uh, from 1819. So I think Murnau created something unique in a lot of respects, even to the extent famously of the female lead dying, you know, at the end of the film. Uh, rather than simply getting to reunite with with a, say, Harker-type character. Uh, so I don't think she was in the right. Courts did find that. But I think you you use the word eventually, which is important, because we so often hear the story that a court agreed with Stoker, the estate, Florence, and we hear that the court ordered the destruction of all of the prints. Those things are historically true, but they didn't happen until after a few years after Nosferatu's major theatrical run. So Florence succeeded, but she didn't succeed in audiences uh, not seeing the film. You know, it was playing repeatedly uh, in various countries uh, before the court made its decision. The final justice, though, I think is uh, on Murnau's side, because what I found in my research for this book 
we well we all know that Nosferatu survived despite F, uh, claims that by from the court orders edicts that it had to be destroyed or every copy of it we all know it survived but i don't yeah. think any of us knew until i was doing research in germany that the court documents for florence's case the original german documents don't survive uh, they like a lot of documents you know they they you know they go missing or thrown out or damaged in floods or whatnot. So the court documents said the film had to be destroyed. The film survives. The court documents do not. Gary, last question on this uh, topic for me. Was the film at any point completely out of circulation or were there always some copies that, you know, if somebody really wanted to see it, they could see it? Well, that's a great question. It's, uh, it, you know, the underground world of film collectors back, and we may all consider ourselves most of us film collectors now because we, or at least me, buy a lot of Blu-rays or so forth. But in the days where you actually had to have film prints, you know, that underground world of collectors existed, but it was a pretty small group. In the 1930s and 40s, it would have been tough to see the film. In the 1920s, it kept reappearing in places, even after that court order, including in, in America including in Paris in, in 1926, late 1926. It keeps kind of reappearing during the 20s. The 30s, 40s, it would have been very tough to see it. By the 1950s, uh, by which time it was seen as public domain in a lot of countries, uh, Germany didn't always see it that way, but America did after World War II. Copies started being made regularly on safety, 16 millimeter prints, and they started turning up in all kinds of places. So part of the century, it was tough. Maybe 20 to 30 years, it would have been tough to see it. Most of the time, that's not been the case. You know, it, would, it, was, it was standard fare for film programs at universities to show from the 60s onward, for example. Oh, interesting. Um, so still on the subject of Nosferatu, um, there is a new movie that's coming out at the end of this year. I believe it's set to release around Christmas time. And it's directed by Robert Eggers and will star Bill Skarsgård and Lily Rose Depp, among other wonderful actors. Um, have you heard much about this film in terms of what we might expect? And what are your thoughts about this upcoming remake? Is it something that you might be keen to see? Well, I'm extremely happy you ask, and I'm extremely eager to see the film. Uh, I, uh, you know, there's uh, Nosferatu, of course, at a given point, but by the end of the 70s, really becomes kind of a cultural icon in America and Western Europe, certainly, and in much of the world. Some of this is because, uh, you know, Werner Herzog, of course, remakes the film in 1979 with Klaus Kinski. Uh, by the 1980s and 90s, there are toys in America and so forth. I mean, there's there's even been a Nosferatu character on Family Guy, I think. You know, it, mm -hmm. it this character that once upon a time was scarcely known. Uh, now everybody knows Nosferatu. So, I love that the character keeps coming back in revivals. I absolutely love Robert Eggers' work. I think he's one of the most brilliant modern American filmmakers. Uh, we, we know him, of course, for films like The Witch and The Lighthouse, which are just uh, truly amazing and truly unique, I think, compared to most horror films. 
and 21st century horror films. I have been in touch with Eggers. Uh, he wrote, he was very kind. He wrote a blurb for the back of my new book. Oh, nice. Uh, in silent cinema. Yes. So, so he's uh, a very exciting individual. Uh, but I, uh, I know that the film in general, they have been intentionally secretive, uh, you know, not showing as much yet and so forth. So in some ways, though, that makes me even more excited because I think Egg Eggers is one of the great powerhouse filmmakers, you know, right up there with people like P.T. Anderson or Terrence Malick or some of the very best. I'm extremely excited to see the film. And I even love that it's coming out at Christmas. It seems, of course, like Halloween is always best for horror fair. But those listeners among us, as I'm sure you and Bruce know, you know, Christmas, particularly in the 19th century, was always a time for ghost stories. Mm -hmm. Most famously Christmas Carol, but there were so many others, particularly in Victorian England. Uh, so I think it's it's wonderful. I, a few things this year am I more looking forward to. Oh, I know. I'm really looking forward to seeing it as well. I'm quite excited. <laughs> yes, you and me both. It's wonderful. <laughs> Hey, Gary, I'm curious, did Eggers ask you for any advice? Well, he read the entire book and was extremely complimentary about it. Uh, but no, 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 I wish he had. Uh, <laughs> although I don't know what I could say that he wouldn't already know, because I think he is as keenly aware as anybody that this is one of the most famous films ever made, one of the biggest classics, and certainly in horror. You know, there's this small number like Psycho and The Shining and Nosferatu and there's a lot of classics, but there's some that are just in that most upper echelon. And for any filmmaker, I think they know, as Herzog did in 79, you know, you've, you've really got to be at the top of your game to try and remake something, you know, like that. It would almost be like remaking Casablanca or something. I mean, most of us would probably be scared to try. Yeah. So I, I think he knows that, that, you know, it's, uh, it, it, there's a lot riding on this, including the inevitable comparisons we will make, you know? Right. I thought I saw Willem Dafoe's name as part of the cast. Am I right on that? Yes, you are. And, and originally when he was cast, we knew he was cast before we knew who was playing which character. And that led some people to speculate, well, is he playing Nosferatu again? Because yeah. he had in, in, in Shadow of the Vampire, of course. Uh as it happens, he's he's not playing uh, Nosferatu. Obviously, that's going to our friend uh, uh, Bill Skarsgård, you know, that Tracy's mentioned, who so wonderfully was, was you know, the clown in It and so forth. Uh, uh, so uh, it'll be interesting to see finally the full cast list, who's playing what, and how much he, you know, he adheres to the original story. Uh, or in the same way that, as we were saying, Murnau so differed from Stoker, even though it was an adaptation, it was so loose. Will this become as much Robert Eggers' Nosferatu as it, as it, as, as it is Murnau's, meaning he will have changed it so much from the original? Yeah. It's, it sounds like a, a fascinating film. I've seen some of the still shots, and they look very intriguing. Uh, again, scheduled for December of 2024. Christmas release, sort of reminiscent of when The Exorcist came out. That came out, I think, just after Christmas back in 1973. Well, Gary, let's talk about the guy that you are probably most associated with, because I think you're the leading expert on him, and that would be Bela Lugosi. Um, I always mistakenly call him Bella. It should be Bela. That is the correct pronunciation. Where did your fascination with Lugosi begin? 
Well, thank you for that and the kind words. I, I'd quickly say that, uh, you know, there's some other tremendous people who have written about him, like Robert Kramer in the 1970s, or even my sometimes co-author, Bill Kaffenberger. But it's it's very kind of you to make those comments. Uh, and and I would say that for me, I became fascinated in uh, with him probably around the age of four when I first saw uh, Dracula, the 1931 version with Lugosi, of course. Uh, my mother was always in love with horror films back to her youth, as well as the original shock theater, uh, you know, in 1957, 58. And so her continued uh, continued love of those kind of led to me watching those films from the earliest age on television, of course, and uh, seeing things like Dracula and the Wolfman, the Cheney version, 1941, when I was very young. But Lugosi and Vampires seemed, of all of the horror films, uh, both of the new ones of the 70s when I was a kid, as well as the old ones on TV, Vampires and Lugosi seemed to be uh, the most fascinating. When you look back at the film, I remember I rewatched it about 20 years ago. I was kind of disappointed. You know, it wasn't it wasn't as great as I thought it would be. It's kind of choppy. The music is intermittent. Not much in the way of special effects, but in terms of Lugosi, he makes it watchable just by his by himself. I mean, he's just so amazing in that role. Yes, well, and I I think your impressions of the film would be like uh, so many people, even really dating back to the nineteen fifties. There were critics writing saying, you know, having seen it twenty plus years after its release, that they found it at times disappointing. I, I do think that Universal is much to be praised for the incredible restoration of the film that came out, oh, say, circa 2015. And I know various people who had much the same reaction as yourself, and quite rightly so, but who watched the restoration with the sound cleaned up and so forth. People like Ramsey Campbell, uh, you know, who wrote a foreword to a book of mine about the 31 film, that when they watched the restoration, they said, oh, my goodness, now I, I I may still not love it, but I see more clearly why others do, because it's so much more enjoyable to watch once restored, uh, like any old film, you know, that needs needs a bit of TLC. Uh, but uh, but you're absolutely right. I think for even the film's detractors, they are detracting normally things like the lack of a music score, the camera work, uh, maybe some of the direction. It's rare that anybody uh, actually has bad words for Lugosi's performance, because whatever you think of the film in Toto, his performance is, uh, I think, uh, still magnetic. I have not seen the 2015 restoration, so I've got to do that. Well, it's 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 a wonderful Blu-ray, and I am talking off the top of my head. It could be 2014 or early 16, but it's okay. circa 2015. I don't want to be too wrong as I'm remembering back, yeah. but it is it is quite well worth a, a flutter. Do they add any footage, or is it the the same length? It's the same length, but the audio and video restoration is so amazing. You can see the sets and everything so much more clearly. A lot of the heavy hiss that was present on some of the prints that you and I would have seen years ago, uh, gone. So it really is um, it really is quite revelatory. I think it's the difference in seeing, say, Nosferatu 
in a shoddy print, which I did the first time, alas, or seeing it in a really great restoration, you know? Yeah. Well, Lugosi was so good in Dracula, and yet the studios, Universal, did just did not give him the requisite respect for much of the rest of his career. It was difficult for him to get roles. When he was cast, he was underutilized. He was often underpaid. What's the reason for that? Was he typecast or was there some other resentment they felt toward him? Well, I think I think that's the the question uh, of Lugosi's uh, Hollywood career. And and like so many great questions, the question is maybe better and more fascinating than, than, than any answer we can try to give. But there are a few uh, indications we can look back and try to understand what what happened. And of course, it is true that by particularly uh, the mid 30s and the late 30s into the 40s, companies, studios like Universal, he was very well aware as as his wives and various people I interviewed over the many years, the past four decades have told me. You know, he was very aware that they were just sometimes hiring him, paying him too cheap, only to use his name on the marquee, the posters, uh, but having him in some small parts just because it was cheaper than having him on the set longer and so forth. That's very real. What I do believe went wrong uh, is uh, really more to do with Lugosi than the studios, though. He quickly rose to fame in the spring of 1931 with Dracula's release. And the studio, Universal, was very much, even before the release of the film, they were after him to do a long-term contract. And everything we can find suggests he refused. I think he had some good reasons to refuse because there were earlier periods in his life in other countries where contracts and being part of a theater group or whatever, he felt mistreated. He felt forced into certain roles. In Hollywood, initially, when he first got stardom, it seems that he intentionally avoided the long-term contracts that we associate with old classic Hollywood, you know, the three- or five-year contract or something that, you know, a James Cagney or Bogart would have had and so forth. He tried to avoid those and tried to usually at least part of the time, overrule his managers. He at times tried to act as an agent for himself. He even kept going back and forth as to whether he would relent and do horror roles. We can even see him doing this in the, in the late 40s uh, with stage work, where people would want him to revive Dracula and Arsenic and Old Lace on stage. Part of the time he would enthusiastically say yes. Part of the time he would say, no, 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 I don't want to do horror. So I believe, I believe that Lugosi's problems were in some measure due to his own business uh, acumen. Yeah. That doesn't mean he was a stupid business person. I think he was basing off of what he was trying to do in Hungary, what he had hated about some of his parts of his Hungarian career. Even by the time he gets to Germany in 1920, before he even comes to America, he already tries to form his own production company to make films with himself. He will later try to do that in America in the 30s. So he he was trying to avoid the kinds of long-term contracts where somebody could force him to do certain roles. He was trying to be master of his own destiny. He did end up being in charge of much of his Hollywood career more than 
say maybe studio contracts would have meant, but it also was very much to his detriment, particularly financially. Yeah. You know, I think of a movie like Night Monster, which is a really good film, but he's absolutely wasted. He plays a butler. He's on screen for like 10 minutes. I mean, what were they thinking? <laughs> well, I, I agree with you. And, and I, I scratch my head at that one. I actually, I think, I, as I recall, I think I did an audio commentary for, for Universal's release of that film a few years ago. But I, I, what I think is that Lugosi was aware of what they were doing. And at a given point, they were wanting him for his name more than the performance. So it was almost like uh, sometimes what independent filmmakers continue to do to the present day, where they they hire somebody with a name, somebody that maybe had a name particularly five or 10 years earlier. And instead of paying them so many thousands for so many days or weeks of work, they'd have him on the set for three or four or five days and paying very little. Yeah. His name could still go, though, on the poster. Right. Gary, as good as he was in the 1931, the original version of Dracula for Universal, I actually thought he was better in the 1948 film, Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein. Uh, would you agree or disagree? Well, I, I maybe, and I this will make me sound waffly, uh, as if, you know, but I, I would say maybe, maybe uh, I, I could... I can agree with that just as easily as I can disagree with that. And this is the reason why I believe his performances in the two films. This is Lugosi, the Dracula of Dracula's. That's his role. But what I believe strongly is 17 years separates them. Hundreds of stage performances separate them. What I believe is that his performance in 48 is very, very different than it was in 31. His speech, he's far more comfortable with English. He's speaking in a much more, it's still the famous Lugosi accent, but he's speaking in a much more conversational way rather than that more halted, ethereal speech, otherworldly speaking voice uh, he uses in, in the 31 film. The 31 film, he moves slowly and talks slowly. Perhaps that's... Uh, appropriate for a royal figure that count dracula is yeah but in 30 and 48 he moves quite rapidly we see him running we see him literally throwing flower pots at the wolfman while they're fighting uh and struggling with you know an operating table and and so forth so i love both roles both performances i should say so much but I also believe it's it's uh, it's maybe not night and day, but it's close for me as a viewer. His approach, his performance is so different in 48 than in 31. Yeah. What about the film itself? Are you a fan of Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein? Oh, one of my all time favorites. I think that's one. There are certain films that not only do we think uh, that they're so incredible, they're so wonderful, but they also have such rewatchability. You know, all of us maybe have those films we go back to repeatedly, uh, where other films perhaps we only want to watch once or twice. I certainly watch Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein once a year, certainly. Yeah. Gary, let's talk about Lugosi near the end of his life. Uh, he did develop this horrible addiction to prescription drugs. Uh, had to check himself into a hospital to rehabilitate himself. It's it's an aspect of his life that maybe we don't talk about that much anymore, but it was pretty frightful, wasn't it? 
It was. It was. I mean, I think uh, friends of mine, one of my closest friends uh, now deceased, alas, uh, was Richard Sheffield, who was one of Lugosi's closest friends in the 1950s. Uh, And hearing the stories uh, from him, from Paul Marco, some of the Ed Wood associates, some of the various people who knew him, including Lugosi's last wife, I she gave me the only authorized interview she gave to anybody following 1957. Uh, you know, it was horror stories from all of them. And I think even without having spoken to those people, if we see the photos of him when he admits himself to the hospital, there are photos of him without a shirt on and he seems quite so emaciated and thin, quite so different than, say, he appeared in 48, even with Abbott and Costello yeah, it's very tragic. Um, it's very tragic. It's it's something that was not spoken about as much uh, after you know, in maybe the '60s and '70s. Certainly, I think Tim Burton's film Ed Wood and Martin Landau's portrayal uh, brought some of that into more popular culture, uh, mainstream consciousness. But then, of course, that film is now 20 years old, which is hard yeah. to believe, but it is. So, so it's something that yes has had moments where people have talked about it, but it's usually not uh, the period uh, that most of us concentrate on. What did you think of the Ed Wood portrayal? I mean, it was it was a, a performance that Martin Landau gained a lot of praise for, but then I heard some people who talked about it wasn't really Lugosi. He didn't curse, you know, the the foul language and some of the behavior really was kind of over the top. Do you think it was inaccurate? Well, I think, yeah, I mean, from an historical standpoint, a few things were inaccurate, like the fact that so many, many people, uh, so many people who knew Lugosi still living in 1994, that that the very few people who worked with him and knew him are alive now. But in 94, there was still quite a number. And I think, uh, you know, every single person would have said, no, they he almost never cursed and so forth. All that said, I think, uh, you know, with biopics, uh, you know, dramatic license is common. I do think that Landau got really, and the film really got to the heart of some of Lugosi's personality, uh, and 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 so forth. But at the same time, uh, yeah, there were a few historical inaccuracies. But I think even as people are talking of say Oppenheimer or or so forth, you know, uh, there's always some dramatic license there. Overall, I thought the screenwriters, uh, Larry Karaszewski and Scott Alexander, did a tremendous job. Yeah, I agree. It was a great film. Uh, the accuracy, I guess, bothered me a little bit, but uh, the, the total effect was certainly uh, very entertaining. I had one more question, Gary, I wanted to ask you about Lugosi. For a period of time, it seemed like it was fashionable to minimize uh, what he could do as an actor. People said he lacked range, he was too campy. Do you sense that feeling has changed in the last 20, 30 years that we've kind of gone back to a period where we really respect the kind of effort that he put into the films that he did? Yes, absolutely. A- absolutely. And I, I think you've, you've not only hit the nail on the head, but it, your your uh, time frame is is exactly what I would agree with. My first book on Lugosi was published, I think, in late 96. And I was something like 24 or five at the time, you know, and 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 that was just the period where uh, I mean, maybe some of it came out of Ed Wood. Some of it came out of the home video era where all of a sudden many more of his films were available to viewers than ever before. And they saw a much greater range 
than they had witnessed before. I think the fact that we are um, ever the further from the 1930s, 40s, 50s, you know, as the decades pass, as the years pass, his performances seem, um, yes, I think stronger than ever and with greater range. You know, as, as a Hungarian actor in Hungarian theater, he was taught several key different styles of acting. And sometimes people will almost act as if he was kind of just a one trick performer. You know, it was the Dracula thing and that was it. But in so many of his films, including his American films, his talking pictures, we see very different kinds of performances. I think if you watch something like The Black Cat, you see a tremendously different approach to acting and performance style than something like Dracula. Uh, the same again with the almost maniacal performance of the Raven, where he's the mad doctor, uh, one after the other. I think we could talk about Igor famously in Son of Frankenstein in 1939. I think, yes, for various reasons, and perhaps more than anything else, home video, DVD, the opportunity to see so many films that otherwise you just had to hope would eventually show up on a local TV station before VHS. Once we could see so many roles, I think, yes, the tide has turned very much in Lugosi's favor to the extent that for the past 30 years, I think, uh, you know, Lugosi has been more popular probably than he's been since the 1940s. So before we wrap up this great conversation, um, I just wanted to quickly chat about an article that you posted in the Film International website back on January 23rd, which was just a couple of days ago. It was called Movie Theaters Need to Win Us Back. Personally, I really enjoyed that article and I couldn't agree more with you. It's It's been so long since I've gone to movie theater and I haven't honestly gone since before the pandemic. And I truly miss that experience and just seeing the content that's meant for the big screen. Would you mind sharing your thoughts with our listeners about that article that you wrote? Thank you very much. That's very kind of you to say. I, I uh, oh, occasionally write op-eds on different subjects and movie theaters uh, very near and dear to my heart. So many of our hearts. I, I wrote several op-eds uh, on the subject during uh, COVID, uh, the period when they were shut, because there were fears, you know, among many people, even very notable directors and so forth, perhaps they'll never reopen, perhaps they're dead. Uh, and, and of course, they, they weren't, they are not, but they are struggling in some cases. I think they're struggling for various reasons, including, uh, frankly, an overbuilding of movie theater chains in the 1990s. Mm -hmm. where we simply ended up with too many screens uh, in America. And so some uh, correction was eventually going to happen with or without COVID. What we're scared of now, though, is when we look at, you know, at what's happening with some of the theaters, the some of the financial problems they're facing, certainly some other problems. You know, AMC is maybe my favorite because, you know, that in some form or fashion, that company's been around for so many decades, based out of Kansas City. It was originally uh, run by the Durwood family, who had changed their name, I think, from Dubinsky. These wonderfully great American entrepreneurs. Uh, Stan Durwood invented the cup holder. He basically invented for the theater. He invented uh, 
more than anybody else, he invented the multi-screen uh, theater, the multiplex. In fact, that's what AMC stands for, is American multi-cinema. So some of these chains with great histories seem to be running off the rails lately. Twice there have been very, I think, racist uh, incidents where African-American viewers have been ejected for, from AMC theaters for uh, horrifyingly stupid reasons. Uh, lawsuits are underway. We also know that, you know, movie theaters, the prices keep going up for admission tickets, for concessions. They're trying to do a few things. In the past week, uh, AMC gave away free popcorn on National Popcorn Day. Well, that's nice, but that's one day out of 365, you know. Uh, some theaters are now selling uh, alcoholic beverages uh, or, or, or upscale coffees. That's very nice, but again, charging too much. There's talk now of, you know, of increasing the number of commercials for products between trailers uh, to force people to watch them rather than skipping them, you know, and only going in about the time the trailer starts. So mm -hmm. all of these are very stupid things the theater's doing. They're not helping win us back. What I guess I'm saying in my op-ed is that we love movie theaters. I love them deeply, but it's a bit like a relationship. Uh, They've not treated us well for a while. Uh, right. They need to win us back. A lot of us are ready and willing to go. I think they need to put greater pressure on Hollywood in terms of the variety of films we're seeing or lack thereof. Mm -hmm. Enjoy some superhero movies, but it's I don't want to eat the same meal every single day, even if I like it. The, the, the range of films, I think it would be wonderful if they could even convince Disney or Pixar somebody to start making a greater number of uh, cartoons and show a 10 minute cartoon, some kind of unique content. And there are smarter people than me to figure that out. Unique content can include, for example, one of the big box office successes of last year, which was Taylor Swift. Exactly. Not a, not a Hollywood movie, right? Mm -hmm. but, you know, streaming some live concerts that otherwise people can't go to geographically or financially or otherwise. Their unique content is what, is needed because I would believe that say Scar Joe, Scarlett Johansson was quite correct when she was mad at, at Disney for streaming black widow so quickly after it being in the theaters, because that's all the more reason it's easy for all of us to just say, well, no, I'll wait two or three weeks and it'll stream at home. Right. Uh, so, so there's, there's a lot of actors in this equation that need to act better but I think the, the four or five major theater chains need to take the initiative. It looks to me like they're doing what, say, the blockbuster video chain did, uh, which was to do nothing, even as year after year they kept losing ground. Right. They didn't take the initiative, let Netflix beat them out and so forth. No, I think, I think companies like AMC need to stop, say, kicking out great audience members, mm -hmm. uh, as they've done, sadly, and instead look towards exactly what, what we're saying. Win us back. Treat us a little better because we want to come back to this relationship. Oh, I totally agree. And, you know, I I used to love going to theater. And, you know, even part of me would love it if they brought back older movies, those vintage movies, just as a maybe a weekday option. I think it would be a really great experience for the older generations to relive some of those great memories. And, you know, 
expose younger generations to some of the classics and just get a taste of the nostalgia. I just, there's so many different things they could do. And I think I was really fired up with your article. It really kind of hit home. So thank you for that. Well, and thank you so much. I hope, uh, I hope AMC will read it uh, <laughs> and, and, and other chains because uh, I love, I do love them all so much. And I, I'm like you, there's so many wonderful things they do and so many wonderful things they can do to win us back. Exactly. Thank you. Well said from both of you. I think you're absolutely correct. Our guest has been uh, Gary Don Rhodes, prolific author, producer, uh, film director for documentaries. His newest book, Vampires in Silent Cinema, is out now. Gary, for those who want to get the book, and I am certainly one of those, what's the best way to do it? Well, I wish I could say your local bookstore because I love local bookstores. But but in today's world, I suppose the quick, easy method would be Amazon.com. The hardback is out now. The paperback uh, will be coming in the spring. All right. Very good. Vampires in Silent Cinema, currently available hardback and uh, shortly in paperback. It's a comprehensive look at some of these uh, lost films. Some have been recovered as well, vampire films from that uh, silent era. Uh, running from 1896 to 1931. Gary, this has been wonderful. Really appreciate your time and your insights. We'd love to have you back on again. I, I would greatly look forward to that. And Bruce and Tracy, thank you so very much for a wonderful evening together. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Gary. Thank you, Tracy. We hope everybody has uh, enjoyed this program, this um, time in the Museum of the Macabre, as we like to call it. We hope you've had fun with it. I know that uh, I have, definitely. And we hope that you'll join us next time right here in the Ghostly Gallery.